53, 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath lain on him the iniquity of us all. May the Lord bring understanding to our minds today of this scripture. We ask that he'll be with Doug as he opens God's word to us this morning. We welcome Doug and Julie here. It's good to see you again. Good morning, happy Sabbath. Um, before I start this morning, I'd like to invite the Holy Spirit, and I'd invite you to join me in prayer. Uh, dear Father in heaven, Lord, come before you today as your humble servant, Lord. Father, I just want to serve you. I pray that the message that you laid on my heart is your message, that these are your words, Lord, that I'm simply a mouthpiece being used by you. Father, I, I don't want to get in your way in any way. I can't imagine opening your word without inviting your presence there to lead. So Father, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, I have the privilege of bringing a message to you. Now, in our home church in Portsmouth, we are in the middle of a series um, on Jesus and the cross. The pastors and the elders get together every quarter and they decide to do a series of sermons either based on a book in the Bible or a subject in the Bible. And, and, uh, and I have the privilege of, of uh, being invited to partic uh, participate in that. So I had the opportunity to do this sermon based on Isaiah 53. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, obviously this is a prophecy about Christ on the cross. So uh, obviously I was very excited. Now, before I start the message, I actually need two volunteers today, uh, two people that will help me pass out um, some nails. Actually, I need adult volunteers, sweetie, okay? Well, no, I mean, you're an adult, Dan. Am I really? You are. Um, what I'd like each person to do is to take a nail out of the basket. And please have these only go to, um, I don't want small children to have these, okay? Um, these nails are going to represent something. They're going to symbolically represent your sins, your burdens, and your inequities. So that's, again, what, other than safety reasons, that's why small children really don't need to have a nail. Okay? Um, but every adult, unless there's somebody in here who's sinless. I don't know. Show of hands, anybody sinless today? Okay, so if everybody is, has sinned, has burdens on your heart, then you should be taking a nail. And that would include Brian, our cameraman, as well. So... Um, let's not forget Brian, please. I want you to hang on to the nail. We're going to talk about it a little bit later in the message, but I want you to hang on to it. You can, if you have a pocket, you want to put it in a pocket, um, like I just did, or just hang on to it um, somewhere that, that's good for you. But, but make sure, and then would somebody kind of keep an eye in case somebody shows up late today 
would somebody uh, make sure that they get a nail as well because everybody will need a nail um, towards the end here. And thank you for my volunteers. Thank you very much. Um, so Isaiah 53, we're talking about Jesus vicariously taking our place on the cross. Okay? I, I'm pretty sure everybody realizes that that was supposed to be you on the cross. That was supposed to be me on the cross. And Jesus vicariously takes our place. You see, he took the punishment that we deserve. He suffered in our place. The pain, the humiliation, and the abuse that he went through was for you and me. Okay, that was meant for you and me. Now, in this verse, it says that Jesus was smitten of God. That's not a word that we commonly use in our, our vocabulary today. Smitten of God. So I looked it up in the dictionary. Smitten. Struck down, laid low, or hit, or to strike something. Now, in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, my favorite author outside of the Bible, uh, writes in chapter 37, she compares Jesus, smitten of God, with the smitten rock in the desert of Horeb. And in chapter 37, she writes, the smitten rock was a figure of Christ. And through this symbol, the most precious spiritual truths are taught. As the life-giving waters flowed from the smitten rock, so from Christ, smitten of God, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the stream of salvation flows for a lost race. As the rock had, once, had been once smitten, so Christ was to be once offered to bear the sins of many. Our Savior was not to be sacrificed a second time, and it is only necessary for those who seek the blessing of his grace to ask in the name of Jesus, pouring forth the heart's desire in penetral prayer. Such prayer will bring before the Lord of hosts the wounds of Jesus, and then will flow forth afresh the life-giving blood symbolized by the flowing of the living water for Israel. So smitten of God. Now, in our scripture reading in verse 5, we see that he was bruised or wounded for our transgressions. Now, some of your translations, Bible translations, might say wounded for our sins, okay? Bruised for our iniquities, right? Now, I looked up the word iniquities, and the most common word, there are several words used in Hebrew to cover the word iniquity, but the most common was the word avon, which is used to describe perversity, depravity, guilt, or punishment. So that's iniquity. Sin, what is sin? Well, the Bible defines sin itself, okay? The Bible in 1 John 3, 4 describes sin as the transgression of the law. So when we break God's law, we're sinning. Sin is the transgression of the law, right? Now, God's law demands perfection. How many perfect people are here today? Romans 6.23 says that the wages for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Let me say that again. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a very simple person. I never claimed to be highly intelligent. I never claimed to be very deep or insightful. And I kind of look at things from my view in a very simple manner. And I can't wrap my head around eternal life with Jesus Christ. I just can't imagine. I mean, I think about it, right? But I can't, how do you, how do you, we've never experienced anything like that. You know, the Bible says that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But that's what's waiting for us. And you see, this eternal life with Jesus Christ is a gift. It's free to you and me. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. We can't buy it. We can't barter for it. We can't beg for it. It's a gift. Jesus has already offered it to you and to me. All we have to do is accept it. You see, the gift is free for you and me, but not for Jesus. Jesus paid the price for that gift. And you see, the value of a gift is determined by the one who's giving the gift. And that value is determined on what that person paid for that gift. And what they paid for that gift was based on what I call perceived value, what they perceived the value to be worth. Now, let me explain it to you like this. Before I, um, before I became a Christian, I used to have a restaurant here in New Hampshire, just this tiny little place. And it only sat about 150 people with, with a deck for 30, and 30 more seats in the summertime. And we ran pretty much on a skeleton crew, 30, 35 employees. So you kind of get the idea. It's just this tiny little hole in the wall I used to have. But, yeah, great train running through it. Steve was there. Um, when I was setting up the restaurant, I had to write my menus. And in writing menus, you have to price out the items for the menu. Okay? And... Now, I have pretty much grew up in the, in the food service industry, have been in the food service industry, managed places. I understand budgets for food service managers, owners, and whatnot, and how that works. Pricing out a menu is really a balancing act. It's kind of like walking on a tightrope. Because if you price it too low, you might sell a ton of them, but you're not going to make any money, right? And... I don't know if you realize this, a restaurant is in business to make money. It's in I, mine didn't, but some restaurants, I think, make money. I, I've, I've heard about them. But, so you're in business to make money, so if you price it too low, you won't make any money. You'll work really hard, but you won't make any money. If you price it too hard, uh, too high, nobody's going to come. They're going to say, oh, you know, 
The food might be good, but the prices are too high. I'm not going there for dinner. It costs too much because they don't see the value in it. Now, if I go into a restaurant to order a burger, well, let's say it's a vegan burger, right? But let's say I go to order a burger at a restaurant. I can expect to pay probably, depending on the restaurant, probably 6 to $12 for a burger, right? I'm not talking McDonald's. Um, and when I order that burger, let's say it's $8, and I order that burger, I'm perceiving that the value of that burger is worth $8. Otherwise, I wouldn't order it, right? If I didn't think it was worth $8, I'm not going to order it, right? If, if I'm expecting them to bring me a McDonald's cheeseburger for $8, I'm not paying it. Now, in writing my menus, I always had the philosophy that I could charge anything I wanted. Okay? For example, I could charge you $30 for a hamburger. And you'll pay $30 for that hamburger as long as you perceive that it's worth $30. As long as you perceive the value of that burger to be worth $30, it might actually only be worth $6, but as long as you believe it's worth the $30, you'll pay $30 all day long for it. That's perceived value, okay? I'm not making this up. This is mar uh, you know, sales and marketing one-on-one. Any marketing student would teach you this, okay? So that's the perceived value. You'll pay what you perceive the value to be for that item. Now, take that theory and apply it to God and to you. What did God pay for you? Everything. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God the Father perceives your value so high, he gave his only son. Jesus Christ died on the cross because he perceives your value. He gave up heaven. He gave up his life. He gave up all that for you and for me because that's how high he perceives the value in you. When he sees you, that's the value that he sees for you. Now, the price that Jesus paid, let's think about this for a minute. The price that he paid included every precious drop of blood that came out of his body. That price that he paid included a broken heart. You see, Christ suffered from a broken heart before one whip had ever lashed his flesh. His heart was already broken. Before one hand had ever slapped that beautiful face, his heart was already broken. Before one friend forsook him and ran away, his heart was already broken. That price included the nails that were driven through his hands. Think about this for a minute. These were the same hands that healed the blind and healed the lame. These were the same hands that created this world and the universe. And now nails have been driven through them to secure him to a cross. And what drove those nails? 
Oh, the Roman soldier's hammer. No, it wasn't. It was my sins drove those nails through his hands. It was your sins that drove those nails through his hands. You know, oftentimes, people tell us to personalize Scripture. They say, you know, when you read Scripture, you should insert your name because that Scripture was written for you, and that's true, and I, I, I do that, and I suggest you do it. And I'll give you an example. Go back to John 3.16. Instead of reading it as, For God so loved the world, you could say, For God so loved Edna. For God so loved Dan. For God so loved Steve. For God so loved Doug. Put your name in there. Personalize it. But we should also personalize the cross. Because you see, it was my sins and it was your sins that put him up there. You see, it was my sins that drove a spike through his feet. These were the same feet that carried our Lord for 33 and a half years on this earth. These were the same feet that carried him into the temple to worship. These were the same feet that walked on water so he could reach his disciples. These were the same feet that were washed with the tears of Mary and dried with her hair. And now they're nailed to a cross. My sins pushed a crown of thorn into his brow. The thorns cut into his flesh. Blood streamed down his face, that beautiful face. That face had shown compassion on thousands of people. That face was the first face a blind man saw when he was cured. That beautiful face was the face of God. The king of the universe hung naked on a cross, bleeding and dying, because that's the price. That's the perceived value that he has for you and he has for me. That's the price. So I've heard people say to me from time to time, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Please don't ever say that. Don't ever say you're not worthy. You're worth everything Jesus paid for you. And he paid it all for you. Dan said, he paid it all for you. And when he died on the cross, going on the cross, he did it for me and he did it for you. And he did it so we don't have to carry our sins. We don't have to carry our burdens. He wants us to take those and leave those at the foot of the cross. He doesn't want you to carry them anymore. You know, Julie and I had a very interesting experience this spring. We went to uh, the prayer retreat up at Camp Laurelweld, up in Weld, Maine. If you've never been to a prayer retreat, I highly recommend you go. Um, I've been to a couple of them. Steve and I went to one. Um, everyone I've been to is a huge blessing. Well, Julie and I went to this one in, in May. And we had an experience. There were, well, we had several experiences there. But this one that really stuck out was there was a couple there who work on the prayer team. And the prayer team are just volunteers that work with the conference ministry, you know, setting up things like the prayer retreat. Well, this one couple had set up this prayer walk. So what was the prayer walk? The prayer walk was... They had set up these different stations throughout the camp. 
and they were numbered. Obviously, you start at number one, two, three. You go down the line, right? At each station, there was, there was like a, uh, a placard or something written, and it, it described what that station symbolized, the symbolic significance of it, and gave you some suggestions on something to pray about. So we started the prayer walk, and I think it was at the second, at the second stop, they had this bowl of nails. And we were told to take one of the nails because the nails represented our sins and our burdens. Sound familiar? And we were to hang on to this nail and put it in our pocket and carry it. And this represented carrying our sins or our burdens. Okay? And then you go down through a few more stations. Well, we got to one station down by the lake at the camp. And there's three crosses set up. And that represents the cross of Christ in between the two thieves. And at the foot of the cross of Christ was another bowl. And we were instructed to take the nail out of our pocket and to leave it at the foot of the cross. And that was to symbolically leave our sins and our burdens with Jesus at the foot of the cross. Now, on a personal note, Julie and I had been carrying a burden of hurt for two years. We had gotten hurt by some former friends. I won't go into the details, but... And we had been carrying this hurt. We were hurt pretty bad by some, some people. And we had been carrying this burden. And when we got to this stop at the cross, it was just all coming out. It was just... I'm sitting there trying to read you know, what they have written for that stop, and I just couldn't. I got so overwhelmed with emotion. I just couldn't read it. Julie tried. She, she struggled, but she got the words out. We were just so overwhelmed with emotion of leaving our sins and our burdens at the cross and stop carrying it. When we got home Sunday afternoon after unpacking, we were talking about what an awesome weekend we had and the different things we went through. And, of course, we talked about this prayer walk. And I told her that for the first time in two years, I really feel peace in my heart over what had happened. I, don't, I didn't feel like I was carrying that burden anymore. I really felt that I had left it at the cross, that I had left it all with Jesus. And I can't tell you how awesome that was, to have that peace in my heart, to not carry that burden any longer. That was just, it was amazing. The solution to everything is at the cross. It's at the cross where we will feel no more pain. You know, oftentimes, you know, you run into people and they say, hey, how you doing? And people will say to me, hey, Doug, how you doing? And I often respond with, better than I deserve. He has. Better than I deserve. But what does that mean, better than I deserve? I said that to a pastor one time, pastor within our conference. He said, hey, Doug, how you doing? I said, better than I deserve. And I stopped in his tracks. And he turned to me and he said, you just summarized the gospel in one sentence. 
In one sentence, you just described the gospel of Jesus Christ. In one sentence, you just described the new covenant. Better than I deserve. Since I started saying that several years ago, as a response, I've gotten some interesting <laughs> replies back. I, I, sometimes I'd hear things like, better than you deserve. Oh, Doug, come on. You're a good guy. You deserve a lot. And I tell them, I don't want what I deserve. I want what Jesus deserves. I had this one guy at this office I used to work at, and he says to me, hey, Doug, how you doing? And I said, better than I deserve. And he stopped in his tracks. And he looked at me, and he said, either you have a very low self-esteem, or you think something better is coming. And I told him, I said, you know what? I know something better is coming. Better than I deserve. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. All is inclusive. All means everybody. Okay? I know there are some people out there who think that that doesn't apply to them. They're quick to point out my sins. They're quick to point out your sins. But they don't want to look in the mirror at their own, do they? But the Bible is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, we're all on a journey with Christ. We're all on the same road, so to speak. You may be further down the road than I am, but by God's grace, I'll get there too. So pray for me. We're all on this journey, and we should all be lifting each other up. We should never be pointing fingers at anybody. We should never be looking down at somebody. Maybe they're struggling with something that you never struggled with. Pray for them. Lift them up. Encourage them. Don't put them down. You know, I, I thank God. When I became a Christian, I gave up drinking alcohol. And I praise God because I was never addicted to it. I was never an alcoholic. Ironically, at the time, I owned a bar, <laughs> and I was selling alcohol, but I stopped drinking alcohol. God mercifully shut that place down eventually. But anyways, that's a whole other story. But it wasn't a struggle for me. I praise the Lord I was never addicted to it. Okay? I mean, I used to drink, and especially back in the day, I used to drink to excess. But it was always something I could walk away from. So when I learned in the Bible what the Bible says about drinking alcohol, I said, well, I need to just stop. And I stopped, and I praised God. Now, it would be wrong for me to point my finger at somebody who is struggling with alcohol. Because there's plenty of people out there that do. So what's your struggle? What's something that you gave up that you didn't struggle with? Think about somebody who is struggling with that. Lift them up by God's grace. Lift them up in prayer. Give them words of encouragement through Jesus Christ. Because you see, there is hope. Even for a sinner like me, there is hope. You know, when I look in the Bible, one of my favorite passages, and I have many favorite passages in the Bible, 
But one of my favorites is 1 John 1, 9. And it says, if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? There's that word all again. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness. He's not going to say to me, Doug, you know you went too far this time. I can't forgive you for that. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even a sinner like me has hope. Even a sinner like you has hope. That brings me back to our scripture reading and thinking about Christ on the cross and why Jesus had to die, why he had to take our place. Because I hear very, a lot of well-meaning Christians who tell me that the law was changed. If the law was changed, then why does Jesus Christ have to die? You see, the law doesn't change. And it doesn't change for the times. And it doesn't change based on society and what society says is okay now. And God's law doesn't change for our conveniences. Okay, the Bible is very clear that it is in fact eternal. It lasts forever. And when it's broken, it requires death. So the choice that we have to make, you can choose to pay the penalty yourself but there's no coming back from that. Or you can choose to accept the gift that Jesus Christ offers when he vicariously took our place on the cross. That's your choice. I can't make that choice for you. You can't make that choice for me. We all have to make our own choice. You see, Jesus is offering you what he deserves. Because he already took what you deserve. So when I say, I'm doing better than I deserve, that's what I mean. I'm doing better than I deserve. Because you see, as soon as man sinned, God came down to this world and he sacrificed a lamb and he took the skins and he, he covered Adam and Eve. As soon as man sinned, God prepared a way out through the Lamb of God. And he promised us no more pain. But then you say, oh, but I keep falling, or I keep struggling. I keep, you know, I keep falling. What am I supposed to do, Doug? I keep falling. I want to do right, but I keep falling. I keep struggling. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord when you're struggling. Praise the Lord when you fall down. You know why? It means you're alive. It means the Holy Spirit is still working in you. It means there's still hope. You can't fall. And, and when you fall, and notice I didn't say if. I said when you fall, by God's grace, get back up. Through his strength, not your own, now, I could illustrate it this way, and I thought about doing this. If I fell flat on my face right here on the floor, and the only reason I 
only thought about doing that as an illustration, and I'm afraid I couldn't really get up. But anyways, um, but let's say I fell flat on the floor. I'm flat on my face on this floor. If I never get up, I'll never fall again, right? I'm already down. How can I fall again if, I, if I'm already down? I can only fall again if I get back up. So if I get back up by God's grace, there's a chance I could fall again. And this very wise pastor, maybe you guys have heard of him before. I heard it in one of his sermons. Oh, what was his name? Cliff Gleason. Have you guys heard of him? I heard in one of Pastor Gleason's sermons, he said, the sign of a mature Christian, not that they don't fall, not that they don't struggle. It's that when they do fall or stumble, how fast they run back to the throne of grace. I'll have to introduce him to you guys sometimes. A great guy. Yes, amen. That's right. Um, so if, you're, if you fall, by God's grace, claim the promise in Psalm 145, 14, the Bible says, the Lord upholdeth all that fall and rises up all those that be bowed down. You see, you have hope. Because God the Father gave his only begotten son, you have hope. Because Jesus Christ came to this world and lived the perfect life that you and I can't live, we have hope. Because Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place on the cross, we have hope. Because Jesus Christ was resurrected and taken back to the Father, we have hope. And because he promised to return and take us home, we have hope. <coughs> You know, as Christians, and especially Adventist Christians, it's in our name, right? We look forward to the blessed hope. We look forward to Jesus Christ coming to take us home. Who's looking forward to Christ coming back to take us home? Absolutely. Every hand should be high in the air, right? And when we think about this, we always say, oh, what a joyous day that will be. Man, am I going to be so happy when I see Jesus through the clouds. My heart's just going to burst out of my chest when I see Jesus come through the clouds. How happy am I going to be? Who's going to be happy when Jesus comes? Again, every hand should raise, absolutely. What about Jesus? How happy do you think he's going to be? You ever been excited about something, looking forward to something. I mean, I think back to being a kid, Christmas Eve. Man, it was like impossible to get to sleep Christmas Eve, right? Because you just you couldn't wait for Christmas morning. Or you're a kid in school, and it's like a week before summer vacation. It's like, man, the anticipation is great. You start counting down the days, right? I wonder if Jesus is counting down the days. I don't know. Maybe he is. I don't know. But I know he's excited. He's already paid a very high price and he's coming to take us home. You know, I think about my grandson Ian. And some of you know him. He's been up here with me 
And uh, if you don't know him, you've probably seen him with me. Anyways, Ian is funny because, well, he's eight and a half now. He doesn't come as often because now we have to fit into his social calendar. You know, it's like, man, like, he's growing up, Papa. What do you want? I'm like, I want him to be my little baby. But anyways, I always, I always call him my refugee from Arkansas. See, when he was born, my daughter was down in Arkansas, and uh, that's a long story, don't ask, but uh, after he was born and a couple months later, she wanted to move back to Maine. So what I do, I had flew down to Arkansas and drove her and the baby back up. So now I always tell him, I say, you know, if it wasn't for me, you'd be down in Arkansas saying y'all. <laughs> so I tell him he's my little refugee from Arkansas. But he comes to my house on weekends. Like I said, not as often now because he's getting older. And I have to fit into a social calendar. But usually when he comes, my daughter will meet, meet me halfway. We usually meet in Portland. We have this little game we play. It's a negotiating game. I say, okay, I'll meet you in Sanford. She goes, no, Auburn. I go, okay, how about Bitterford? She says, gray. And we end up agreeing on Portland. Something crazy we do. Anyways. But sometimes, because of her work schedule, I have to go all the way up there to get them, and they live up in Turner, Maine. Way up north, right? So it's a couple hours drive for me to go all the way up there. But it's worth it, because I get to see my grandson. So this one particular weekend, I had to go all the way up to Turner because my daughter was working that Friday. And so the house that they were living in at the time was owned by her grandparents, who lived next door. Now, in between the two houses, was this big field and this big garden. Her grandfather was, was into gardening quite a bit. I should say is, he's, he's not deceased. And Ian, at a very young age, was learning to work in the garden with his great-grandfather. So this one Friday afternoon, I'm going up to Turner, Maine to pick him up. I left work and, and I'm driving up 95 and I'm getting excited. I'm gonna see Ian for the weekend. I'm gonna spend some time with my little boy. And I'm getting excited. And the closer I'm getting to Turner, the more excited I'm getting. And by the time I got into Turner and I get to the house, I pull in the driveway, I'm so excited I jump out of the car. I can't wait to see this kid, right? And I look, and he's out there in the garden with his great-grandfather. And he looks up, and he sees me, and he starts running. And as he's running, he's yelling, Papa, Papa. And he's running so fast, it seems like his feet aren't even touching the ground. And I'm so excited, and I'm so excited because he's so excited. And he gets in the driveway, he jumps in my arms, we give each other a big hug. That made me think about how excited Christ is going to be to see us. Again, we talk about how excited we're going to be to see him. But how excited, I mean, when... When I was getting up there, especially when I saw him come running and yelling, Papa, Papa, my, I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. I wonder if Jesus is going to feel like that. I wonder if he's going to feel like his heart's just going to jump right out of his chest when he, when he comes to take us home. I bet it will. I bet, it will. I bet he'll feel like that. He's that excited. He loves us that much. That that's how excited he's going to be. That he's going to feel like his heart's just going to jump right out of his chest. And the angels, too, and God the Father as well. And us, what a glorious day that's going to be. My appeal today, I have three appeals as I close my sermon. My first appeal 
is for anybody out here, if there's anybody here who's never given your heart to Jesus, I'm inviting you to do that today. Make that decision to give your heart to Christ, and I promise you, angels in heaven will be singing praises to the Lord of the universe over your decision. Over your one little decision, angels in heaven will be praising God. So if you've never given your heart to Christ, I invite you to do that today. If you have given your heart to Christ, you're a Christian, but you're thinking, maybe my relationship could be a little stronger. You know, sometimes I get busy, life gets in the way, and I don't always put Jesus first. Maybe I should just rededicate my life to Christ. I'm inviting you to do that today. I invite you to do that every day. The Apostle Paul said, I, I die daily. So if, if, if you'd like to rededicate your heart to Christ, I invite you to do that today. And again, that decision is recorded in heaven, and angels are singing over each one of those decisions. And my third appeal for you today is to take the nail, if it's in your pocket or wherever, And remember, this nail symbolizes your sins and your inequities. And I'm inviting you today to take this nail and to come forward to the cross and leave it in the basket at the foot of the cross. Symbolically, leaving your sins and your burdens at the foot of the cross. So I invite you to do that today. And as you come forward, please stay up front because I'd like to have a prayer for everybody. So I'd like to invite everybody to, in an orderly fashion, to come up and symbolically leave your sins and your burdens at the cross. Thank you, brother. And stay up front as you do that, please. Right in front of you, Steve. Yes. It is. All those nails going in the basket. Absolutely. Those are your sins and your burdens that you're no longer carrying because you're leaving them at the foot of the cross. You're giving them all to Christ. You're letting him take care of that for you. He's already offered this to you. Has everybody had the opportunity? Okay, I'd like, to, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, gracious Lord, Father, we, we come before you with thanksgiving on our hearts, Lord. Father, we're so grateful that you took our place on the cross. Father, we're so grateful that your word gives us hope that we know that there is hope that if we come before you and confess our sins, we stand on the promise that says that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Father, as each person has come forward today, let that symbolize 
leaving their sins and their burdens at the cross. Let that symbolize no more carrying sins and burdens, Lord. Letting it go and letting you have it. May you be with each and every person. May each and every person here today be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you like to go back to your seats as we sing the closing hymn? As we prepare to sing the closing hymn today, I'd like you to really concentrate on the words to this hymn. A lot of prayer went into choosing the right hymn to close this message. And I believe it's 198. It says, and can it be? But really look at, I guess it's the third stanza, right? It's not, I call it verses, but in music it's stanza. In the third stanza where it says, my chains fell off and I'm free. That symbolizes what we just did today. But shall we sing?
Shall we pray? Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you died in our place, Father. We thank you for the gift. Although free for us, you paid that high price, Lord. Father, we thank you that as we come to the foot of your cross, our chains are falling off, Lord, and our hearts are free. Father, may we always be bold and come before your throne, your throne of grace, Lord. Please be with each person here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.